Thomas Heatherwick is an English designer and the founder of Heatherwick Studio, a London-based architectural firm that's made its name designing some of the world's highest profile placemaking projects. In this episode, Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology, sits down with him for a conversation on the sidelines of Singapore Design Week. This is the Design Dialogues. Thomas, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So my first question is about, well, multidisciplinary design. I don't know if you would agree, but I feel there's been maybe a return to the multi-hyphenate or the multidisciplinary, or at least perhaps a growing respect for multidisciplinary designers or multidisciplinary in creativity. Uh, And I wondered whether you encountered any resistance to how multidisciplinary your studio is when you first started and if that's changed over the years. Oh, well, um, it's an interesting question. I, I suppose I, I've never seen my studio as multidisciplinary. I see it as one discipline that for some reason, for a certain period of time, there was this trend to break it up and think that it's a very good idea to specialize in narrow slices of the three-dimensional world that we all experience around us which seemed a bit counterintuitive to me and I think that I would probably say I feel we're going in a good direction towards something that is more human focused that's my passion has always been the the human experience of the world that we have around us and it seemed that that narrow focus had caused a lot of the damage by not keeping in mind people's emotion how they feel about place and thinking that by putting the blinkers on and being a specialist that you are somehow going to make better projects and we've ended up with a world that I, I believe that many of the cities the experience we have has been creepingly catastrophic and we've ended up with this sort of placelessness which isn't a subjective thing it's relatively objective when over 90 percent of people feel that way it's objective and and i think that we've told stories to give permission for things and we've told stories to ourselves about how it's more expensive now to build than it was in the past when buildings had more human qualities. And I don't mean the style, uh, but actually we've just learnt how to make cheaper and we decided to value other things more. And there's now research that's showing that and that we said that how you feel about places, it's totally subjective. And I think that was another one of these stories we told ourselves to sort of um, be a a cover for making inhuman, boring cities. And we focused on the insides that were private worlds for people who lived in them or stayed in them, worked in them. 
and allowed the victim to be the public experience. As we said that form followed function and we led from the inside in that functionality. And you know, if you take any internal space, it's maybe going to be occupied in the next 20 years, I don't know, let's say by a thousand, 2000 people, but outsides of buildings in city centers are the landscape of the lives in 20 years of 200 million people. So you know, it feels like we've got weird ideas of who's customer and who's really the, um, who's really impacted by projects and, and a lot of the buildings, the public has been the, uh, has been last on the list rather than really being considered proportionate to their experience of place. Mm. So, um, so to me, that has to be led by a, a broad-looking set of all of us in the design world, in the developing world, in the uh, planning world, in the experiencing world. And I think that the disempowerment of everybody that felt like the world was done to them is such a shame. And a sort of polarization that ended up with people who... I mean, I do feel that we are all, everybody is an expert on buildings because we've all lived in them and been around them all our lives. It's not like quantum mechanics, where genuinely I am not an expert at all. I don't really know anything, and probably most people I would grab aren't either. But buildings, we all have experienced and have intuitions and instincts and life experience in and around them. And I think there's this notion built up that the public are ignorant and I just really don't think that's the case and and I think that the the we got into a funny place like a weird cul-de-sac that's stuck and fixed because it was handy because it was cheaper as well and we told ourselves stories that subtle and clean lines was good and then uh, 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 us all as public then many of many don't have great immense imagination and so you think you look for what did have more human qualities and look backwards and grab the past. And I don't believe that the past is the way that you make the future, but I think there's lots of lessons in it. But uh, at the, the building construction design profession sort of roared with laughter at people saying, ha oh, copying the past, but didn't see that that's just a symptom of disenfranchised failure of design. And it's your job to imagine possibly more human things that can engage us at different different levels and different scales so i think there's a sensitivity mind shift needed and my key key thing is that i believe that the rational way of thinking is correct and that form does follow function but that we forgot that emotion was a function and you rationally hunt down emotion and i think we're also in a really amazing time where the idea that taste is totally subjective and what's good and what's bad is totally subjective is, is going to rapidly be exposed and busted because we now have data. We, we've got the ability with artificial intelligence. We have the ability with retina tracking. We have the ability with the new forms of immersive virtual reality headsets they can tell your emotion by their tracking all the eye movements, the muscles around your eyes, not just your eye, and can read emotion. And that's been driven very much by things like gaming. But from that, 
we will objectively be able to see. And already there's significant research saying, showing that people feel stress in these environments that don't have sufficient visual complexity. And that it's, it's, that there's also data showing that people don't heal as fast and that you get antisocial behavior. There's all of those things. But the bigger thing than all of, all of, all of that is the impact in the environment crisis that's unfolding around us that feels like it's somehow something separate to emotion. But we forget that, I mean, in America, a billion square feet of buildings are demolished every year and then rebuilt because the buildings don't mean anything to people anymore. And in the UK, we demolish 50,000 buildings a year. A and a commercial building, the average life is 40 years. So if I had been a commercial building, I would have been killed 12 years ago, which is, and that why is that? It's so, you know, a, a sort of, a, a layer of society has been in control of building the world around us and told a story to itself that the public are ignorant and they don't understand and they're, but who takes buildings down? It's driven by public. If the public don't engage, politicians listen, property developers listen, city councils listen, and those buildings that are demolished are demolished because n no one cares. And so making buildings that you love and that people love is, if you look at the, gr the greenhouse gas emissions in the aviation in 2019, it was 2.1% of greenhouse gas emissions were the aviation industry. And we talk about that a lot in society. Mm. But in the built environment, the built environment as a whole in 2019 was 38% of greenhouse gas emissions. So the idea that how people feel about buildings is somehow, oh, let's just taste, stop it, you know, get serious and let's move on, is exceedingly serious it's 15 16 times more than the impact of aviation so sustainability is absolutely wrapped up in making buildings that are human and we need to stop and think and really learn how to not just use our heads as data but use our emotions and feelings rationally <laughs> I'm, my argument is this is absolute hard-nosed rationalism is to think how people feel. Mm. And it's been this missing gap. And uh, it's so fascinating. And I think now with the data coming up, it'll be unarguable. Well, I mean, you've raised so many very interesting points there. I'm going to try and pick up on a couple of them. I know you mentioned the word boring, and I've, I've heard you talk in the past about the fact that we're perhaps living through an epidemic. Well, yeah, or a pandemic even of boringness. What do you think makes a building or a space not boring or exciting, whatever the opposite of that is, and how do you go about fostering a sense of connection and value between humans and the public, if that's who we're addressing, and their built environment? Are there a set set of principles that you work to, or you know, how do you go about mm. addressing that? Uh, I think we we first need to think about how how amazing cities and towns are when they when they're good, how how you feel when you walk through places and experience people enjoying the collective 
human experience and how spaces can really affect and facilitate and encourage uh, and instigate connection and and we've all experienced i mean it's just like a no-brainer the terrible places that that are almost everywhere and typically when people think of somewhere that works well it's almost invariably always an old place that that they've been and it's not just because it's old Uh, it's because it's full of detail and and different factors that affect our emotion and after covid we have many many of us have learned that we a city is no longer your prison if you work it's possible to work using video conferencing and all the different technologies it, they were all there before but it it really got adopted in a big way so cities are where we come together i, I feel quite I, I kind of almost tear up at how amazing it is and there's a the writer jane jacobs when she wrote about life on sidewalks in america in the 60s and 50s what she describes as an ecosystem of thriving life is just amazing. Now, well, we've kind of got to this point, as I mentioned earlier, where th- there's very much a head, head thinking of place and not thinking at that human scale. And so a lot of the time when we think about the design of a building, we're thinking how tall it is or whether the top is pointy or rounded, or did someone stick a big golden ball on the top, or what's going on. But your the experience, where we all are, if you look at percentages of people, we, most of us are not in helicopters flying around. We're standing on the ground, we're walking on the ground, we're on a bus, in a car, on a tram, on a bicycle, on a funny single-wheeled electric uh, unicycle, or whatever people are doing, that's where we are. So the first 40 foot of a building, I mean, I'm, I'm making this in sort of dumb sound, sounding simple terms, but <laughs> it's something we've been doing on, a, on work we've been doing in well, everywhere, everywhere. That's where the, the bit matters most, where how you feel. Our heads naturally swivel sideways more than we look up. And if you, for an example of that, if you think of people walking down a busy shopping street, certainly in, in London, People are walking down that street, looking around, looking around. But if you ask them, what what was the building above the shop like? Most people don't know. And they're disconnected worlds mm. because the feeling was about what was down near you. So designers need to focus on that first 40 foot. That's where the value is. We don't have infinite money. There's never enough money on anything. So the, the interesting thing, thing is where you focus. Also, with buildings... I, I, I suppose I'm trying to set up with this humanize campaign that, that we are um, part of thinking about really is these three distances. There's the distance, which is a couple of hundred meters away where you see buildings. And that's often where the designing is thinking about how will it look from 200 meters kind of thing. And often buildings look pretty good. They look good from that distance. And that's where often too much love is given. Then the next distance is is about 20, 30 meters, the other side of the road factor. And again, sometimes that's okay. Uh, But in modern building design, the worst is the two meters. Is when you get to two meters, normally you're just looking at a flat bit of aluminium, (laughs) uh, just some silicon sealant, a huge bit of glass, 
uh, nothing, nothing. The furniture scale. It's that's and it's dead to you. It's sterile. But we the scale of us, the scale of each of us. So there's a necessary visual complexity that puts it makes something feel natural around us. And I really emphasize this is I'm, I'm wary to use any word like beauty, just necessary visual complexity. And that's the that's closer distance is the one that shows you whether somebody really is a feeling person leading designs of places, whether they're a developer, planner, city. And th we don't talk about those three distances and understand how and just set the question you ask yourself. How do I f how will I feel from 200 meters? Tell me feeling. Don't tell me a concept. Tell me how you're going to feel. Then tell me the feelings you're evoking from across the street. And then most of all, tell me the feelings from two meters away. What, what are you evoking? And I think we've got addicted to words like clean lines, mm. simple. And we tell us that story to ourselves, and what, which, and it sounds good. If you say, I think you're doing something, something subtle. <laughs> Who's going to go subtle? Don't give me subtle. Sounds good. It's a, who can argue with subtle? Well, actually subtle and clean lines is responsible for the sterilization <laughs> of place at a pretty comprehensively all around us. The places we love tend to certainly not be subtle when you get up close. And they certainly not clean lines. They're actually full of human scale richness and detail and texture. But the, it's possible to work at all three scales. It's possible to make, to use money wisely. There's never enough money but to really think about where human value is uh, rather than silly, silly nonsense ideas that are being sort of putting effort in the wrong places. Gosh, it all just sounds so obvious when you say it like that. <laughs> I'd like to hear your thoughts on the metaverse and the amount of time and money and energy that's being spent on space exploration instead of perhaps concentrating on the current world that we're, or the planet that we're living on now. <laughs> well, I, I suppose... All the projects that me and my team work on, and we're all working in a virtual reality for years until things get built. So that virtual reality is something we are very used to and, and comfortable in. And it's the springing point for the physical world. And so I'm interested in this, I, I think it is it web Point three or three point zero. Yeah, that this sure. <laughs> if this next sense of the internet as a place that you are not there, sort of on your own looking in, but instead you're you're with people, and with all the building projects me and my team work on, our passion is how you bring people together. So for me, the internet becoming a place where there's a sense of a collective togetherness that. I'm sure it's, it's not an option. It's happening. And, and I think it will be a better place. I think that it's, I, there's nothing to compare to the real physical world. And so I think people who get in a tiz about, oh, will we never go out. You, of course you will. That's, that's, that, this is, but a place where ideas can be tested and prototyped. I think it's, we should think of it as a better version of the internet, really. And... I remember 
you know, in London, if you talk to one of the taxi drivers and they have the knowledge that they have to learn. And I remember one of the cab drivers was telling me, telling me, because I was saying, how can you remember 10,000 roads in London? All of those things. And um, they were describing to me the memory palace. And in their mind, they have created a palace with all these corridors and rooms. And so the streets of London, in their memory, they place three-dimensionally inside a building in their mind. And that that way, it's not just an endless sea of, na of road names. It's three-dimensionalized. And so we've got used to a, a two-dimensional internet. And I think this three-dimensional internet, like a, the memory palace in, in that taxi driver's mind, I think will be something that will help us use it more effectively. But I think there'll be an interesting interplay where it'll be possible to test ideas for buildings because buildings cost so much money. The fear for, for cities, for individuals, for organizations, commissioning is so great. And there's this sort of imagination leap. And if you look back 40 years, people were just looking at these two-dimensional drawings and you could fool people. And people were fooled. There were drawings that looked seductive and then the realities were terrible. And, you, and so my hope for the metaverse is that it's a three-dimensional world that allows, because I've always made models. I always felt drawings, you can fool yourself and you can fool others. But by making models, it facilitates anybody, a 14-year-old, 98-year-old, you can all look and make valid points and not feel intimidated by a sense of, oh, well, I wouldn't know and I'm not sure that I can read drawings. And I think that the, the metaverse as a three-dimensional place, if that means that it allows people to not feel intimidated to have a voice and can comment and can comment with authority and that you can have future planning applications and people can go really experience buildings and look at them and have, feel empowered to to help make things better altogether. And then that, but equally, people can see response. If you're planning something, you can see in the last four days, 300,000 people spent more than 10 minutes inside looking at what we did. That is going to give confidence to people to commission things that might be more human and might be more engaging for us. And I think we've ended up with stupid conversations in the sort of trend of architectural journalism around, is it iconic? Is it a vanity project? If something just isn't utterly boring. And I think that they, they sort of demean the conversation and they make people scared to be human. And we have, to, uh, humans are interesting. Humans are fascinating with our quirks and idiosyncrasies. And buildings need to have the confidence to nurture space for that idiosyncrasy that currently so many spaces and places don't do. Wow. Well, thank you so much for that, Thomas. I yeah, really appreciate your time this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.